off. So I want to welcome Matthew Stevenson to Happy at Work, a show that's all about empowering workers, to bring positivity in the workplace, to make people, workers happier. And what better person do we have today than Matthew, who is an entrepreneur, currently the CEO of Snag a Job, and a really super nice guy who we can explore what, what's happening in the marketplace, what's good, what's bad. And maybe if he's, you know, if, if he'd like, he could share some good career advice and leadership advice. So Matthew, I think maybe you could just share, you know, what, if you want to maybe show like your journey, like how you got here, and then maybe talk a little bit about Snag a Job and what it's like to make that pivot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and th thank you for having me, right? R really looking forward to the discussion. Um, I, I guess a little bit about me, um, on the, on the personal side, I, uh, I actually am half French, half American, grew up, grew up actually as a kid overseas in South America and then came back to the US. Um, and now, now I'm in Austin. But uh, on the professional side, I basically spent the first half of my career with a consulting firm called McKinsey and then left to basically pursue a more entrepreneurial path. So I joined at the time what was a... Um, a really small sort of unknown company called HomeAway, uh, which grew into becoming a very large company now called VRBO and a part of Expedia, but sort of just cemented my love of, you know, entrepreneurism, marketplaces, technology. And then I got introduced to Snagajob through your now executive chairman. And as he sort of described a little bit about sort of the, the place it, it plays and sort of the mission and vision, I remember getting off the phone and telling my wife who I'd promised that we wouldn't leave Texas. And I just remember telling her, like, we just got to go do this. It doesn't make sense, but like, this is what we're meant to do. So that was, uh, that was, you know, over three <laughs> How did you receive ago. that? Did you have kids at the time? We do. Yeah. We've got, we've got three young kids. So for, for a lot of reasons, it was not necessarily uh, the easiest, but it was the right thing. And no, it's been, it's been an amazing adventure, right? I think anybody who has been a part of building a company knows what, what that experience is like and just how rewarding it can be. And also some of the ups and downs. Excellent. So before we jump into, you know, more what Snagajob does, I would love to just hear from you in your own entrepreneurial experience. Um, how has developing and creating a, a workplace for your employees, the role of culture and, um, you know, how much of an importance did that play uh, when you were at home away? And then did you go with Verbo when, when it was acquired or how did that all work out for you? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting, like, I think, um, you know, I mean, I think people often underestimate just the importance the culture plays in the success of an organization. And I think, I think I've been really fortunate in my career that, you know, I think McKinsey has a very defined culture and in a lot of ways is, is, a, is a positive one. HomeAway, I think, had an amazing culture and sort of set the bar for me around, like, what was the type of culture that as I moved to snag a job that I wanted to try and emulate or create, right? And so you take from each of those experiences, but I think, you know, if I think back to my consulting days, you know, I can remember some really fantastic organizations with great products and people who oftentimes it was the culture and the way the organization worked that was actually the biggest inhibitor to its success. Mm -hmm. so Interesting. You, so, so have you developed kind of a game plan? Hey, I see what worked, what didn't work. Here's what I'm going to do now that I'm heading up. Snag a job. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, my, my take on it is like, you know, hopefully you use pattern recognition to say, hey, are, are there some things that 
are core to sort of my principles that I want to make sure uh, are in place. And then you don't necessarily want to just repeat the playbook, right? Like I, I wouldn't be so presumptuous to just say, well, I want to emulate what we had at home away here at Snag a Job or vice versa. Um, but I think there's certain tenants that have become really important to me. Um, you know, I, I think for me as, as an evolutionist example, and, and happy to talk about like, I think where we're sort of saw the opposite of this, even, even just amongst myself is around like the importance of, of transparency with your employees, right? There was a time in my career where, you know, I may have believed in trying to sort of shield people from challenging or difficult situations or context. And, you know, I think I've increasingly realized that at the onset of COVID, this was a sort of a prime example of just how important it is to treat people like exactly what they are, adults and peers and colleagues. And, you know, we all want to process information. We may process it differently, mm -hmm. but again, like people really value when you frankly are transparent with them. And so today as an example, um, we've now probably, I think we are probably the most transparent of any organization I've ever been a part of. So every week we go through with the entire organization, all of the operating metrics of the company, which in prior lives, you know, might've just been the management team going through it. And we talk through exactly what's going on, right? And we, we, I think also have tried to look for certain characteristics in people. So things like intellectual curiosity. Um, I have a really strong orientation around making sure that our people care most about what's right for our customer and the organization and less about, you know, what's right for their function. And, you know, some of that is, some of that does, frankly, I think come from sort of top down, right? And not just myself, but sort of other leaders in the organization, like what, what do we sort of showcase to the organization as to whether people believe it or not? So as it relates to Snack a Job, what is, um, what is the, the purpose, the mission? Um, so this is essentially a platform that helps to uh, allows people in the labor market to be able to acquire jobs and it connects companies and organizations with workers. So what is, uh, what's your mission in being able to really be focused on that, that labor force, that, that workforce um, versus another type of population that you might have, have created a recruitment type firm for? Yeah, I, I think, I think for me, um, the, the mission is around, you know, so obviously we focus on hourly work and we're the largest platform for hourly work in the country. So these are sort of the 80 million non-salaried Americans, you know, everything from sort of a warehouse associate to a dishwasher in a restaurant. Um, and for me, it's around putting them in really the right fit roles for them to maximize their lives. And for us, sort of the, the vision is, is really around like where you can you know, come to a job, understand the right fit roles and claim full-time, part-time, or even gig-based shift work with the simplest tap of a button. And for me, like what we're trying to solve for, if you think about hourly and sort of the difference with, with white collars, like hourly workers, unlike many white collar workers have never had the ability up until recently to supplement their income using their skill set. And this is a group that is fundamentally underemployed, right? The average hourly worker makes slightly under $11 an hour and gets 30 hours a week if they're full-time. And they don't have a way to really- I, I, I mean, sure Still now with everything, with the war for talent, great resignation, there's a tendency, huh. I think, because, because many of us in these may live in larger cities, right? We, we sort of have a, a skewed view of what the actual averages are across the country. 
right? So uh, as you get outside of metro markets, like those averages tend to tend to be much lower than we than we may otherwise believe. But yeah, I mean it's tough, right? If you're if you're grossing fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month, and there are an awful lot of hourly workers that oftentimes are supporting another individual, whether that's a child or a parent, that's an unbelievably difficult thing. If you don't then have a way to supplement your income when you need it, right? If you're sort of beholden on your employer. So that's one. Two is, you know, I think about like what sort of smartphones and digital has done. It's sort of like revolutionized discoverability of jobs, right? Like, I, I don't know what it was like for you guys growing up, like, you know, if I was in high school and college and I wanted a part-time job, like I'd drive around to a restaurant or a retail store and pick up applications. Thankfully, you don't have to do that now. Uh, so you may know there are 50 jobs available in a three mile radius. What you don't know is like, what are the three best fit roles for me and why? Like, what are the insights? And then probably more so in, in hourly than in white collar is like, how do I grow or advance myself professionally? And that could mean going from the dishwasher to the assistant manager to the store manager. It could be transitioning to a different industry like hospitality. That by and large is a real void in hourly. And that, that's a pain point in white collar, but it's even more pervasive in hourly. And that's a, that's a huge opportunity. And I think the last, and in my opinion, the most transformative is this is a group that has no digital reputation like yourselves or probably a lot of the people who are listening, right? Like there's no, there's no LinkedIn, like LinkedIn profiles, you know, aren't relevant in hourly. And so there's not a way for people to market themselves, right? You could be the best barista in the world companies aren't able to find you, right? Like you have to go on a snag a job or a Craigslist. It's sort of a, a push as opposed to companies not inviting you to apply, but actually just offering you jobs or offering you invitations to interview. And psychologically, that's I think an incredibly powerful thing. And I think over time, what we'll see in hourly is as you start to accumulate reviews and vouching, the best barista or warehouse associates are going to start to be able to charge a premium for their services much in the way you know exists in white collar and then we'll start to see that in blue collar which i think will be a really sort of fantastic uh, dimension that we haven't seen historically it's so interesting so if i understand it correctly it is it based on ai matching where they'll find that uh, barista and match it with a job for you know that person and that's how they find it yeah, so, so AI for sure plays a role. The other piece that's sort of the unsexy but crucial part in all of this is think about sort of creating a taxonomy of all hourly jobs to be able to say, as an example, like a sandwich artist at Subway. Well, that's a frontline prep cook. And then creating the ontology of what are the skills or qualifications that you learn? And then what's the sort of transferability or linkage with other roles? whether they may be positions in that, that industry or other industries that you might be qualified for. And that's an incredibly important thing. One, because a lot of skills and qualifications in hourly are more transferable than workers believe, and often, frankly, more transferable than employers believe. And we saw that, and that was a huge part of sort of education last summer at sort of the onset of COVID, because if you think about what happened, you know, restaurant and retail was decimated. Those are the two largest hires of hourly workers. What we had to do was give confidence to those hourly workers that the skill sets that they had developed in those industries actually were transferable. And we had the data and the actual analysis to say they were, but oftentimes people lack the confidence. And so that's a key role that we play is saying, hey, here's the match score. Here's why you should believe you're actually really well qualified for this role in a completely different industry that you might not have otherwise thought. Now, how is that done? Is that you know, they actually seek out a job like a traditional job board? 
or it would, you, you would match that person up with a job? Like, how do you make, how does that connection get made on the platform? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'll describe sort of like today and then I think, I think where it will evolve. So today it's, it can be a mix. So certainly like you can go on a traditional job board and see, you know, all the jobs and sort mm -hmm. of do filtering or based on your profile, we basically say, hey, here are the five best fit ones right. that are top matches for you based on things that we have inferred based on behavior or based on your qualifications and data that you've given us to then be presented. And increasingly what we're doing is then saying, hey, don't apply for those. Those, those recommendations aren't jobs you apply for. Those are literally just jobs that you just book an interview because you're already pre-qualified. Wow. And that's a fundamentally- That's a huge step. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about I, the way I sort of always describe it for both workers and employers is like both white collar and blue collar are incredibly inefficient hiring processes, right? Like hourly takes about a month. You know, white collar, I'd hope we would say it's inefficient, but it's effective, even if, you know, probably rule of thumb is, hey, if you make 70% of your hires are, are good ones, you've probably done a good job. In hourly, one in two of the hires you make leave within the first 90 days. So it's both incredibly inefficient and ineffective. And so I think technology is at the point, right? And, and AI, AI and ML get used a lot, but certainly certainly they are a core part of that solve. Like it doesn't need to be that way. And frankly, like that enables you to eliminate the application. I think it should enable you to also even eliminate the interview. Because if I think about for an hourly worker, the opportunity cost of an interview, you know, going on public transportation is probably two hours back and forth. You got to arrange for, you know, somebody to look after your child. And what are you getting from that? You're getting to go in the location and usually spend 10 to 15 minutes. That's not going to give you a great sense of whether it's the right fit for you. There are other ways that you can give people that insight that frankly don't require that, that significant of an opportunity cost. And technology, my belief is sort of the enabler for that. So when you talk about the kind of AI component and being able to, to essentially match workers with hourly workers with organizations, what have you seen as far as trends and what advice would you give to organizations who hire a lot of hourly workers or who are dealing with the labor shortage, which I'd be really curious to see, get your perspective on that as well. Yeah. Um, my brother owns a restaurant on Cape Cod and it's really hard to find labor on Cape Cod right now. What, what mm -hmm. kinds of things should he be thinking about as far as recruiting? You should sign up to snag job. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go yeah, send them right. to your site. <laughs> but what, what, what kind of things can organizations do to better recruit and retain, uh, those employees? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, a, a couple of, a couple of thoughts there, you know, one is, one is around, I think there is still a little bit of a misconception around wages, right? I, I more times than I would expect still have to have a conversation around, you know, what paying sort of the right wage is or market clearing wage to be able to attract workers. And, and I think early, early in the recovery, I think there was still this sort of, I think misconception around, hey, this is episodic. I can solve it through sign-on bonuses that don't then sort of create this sort of structurally higher cost. I think still there, there's a piece around making sure that you actually have a competitive wage. And then increasingly like, listen, like I think what we're seeing, and I mentioned this to, to Jack the other day, which is I think we are genuinely seeing the white collarization of blue collar. And for me, that means that because of what is now being afforded to, to blue collar workers in terms of some degree of financial flexibility that they've never had, 
they're sort of resetting expectations and have the opportunity to say, hey, what are you doing to invest in me? And that's where, you know, I, like I encourage people to say, look at what some of the really progressive companies, the Chipotle's, the Starbucks's of the world have done because they're seeing the dividends from those actions, right? And that's, that's everything from the educational assistance that I think a number of companies have, have started to, to come out with, to mental health, to even parental leave, like all things that frankly we take for granted in white collar, which historically have not been the case in blue collar. But again, the, in my mind, the silver lining of COVID has been that hourly workers now have a little bit of financial cushion. It's not much, but enough to be able to say, hey, beyond just having to put food on the table this week, what, what, what am I really looking for? How is this company investing as much in me as I am in them? And I, I, you know, I was mentioning like, there used to be this narrative, it was almost, it was, it was so, in some ways sort of frustrating to me around like lowest common denominator for an hourly worker and that hourly workers like didn't care about their career or their employer. And I think that's proven to be frankly false. I, I think we see that in the data, I think you know, Chipotle has been pretty public with some of the results of what was originally sort of their pilot program. It's been incredibly successful. And I think that's what will make it, you know, more meaningful and able to sort of stand the test of time is that employees are actually seeing the ROI. So one question I have though, is what's the average age of the employee or who's looking for a job on snag a job? And do you, are you seeing generational shifts? I mean, obviously younger workers perhaps going to companies like Chipotle and Starbucks because of their values and because of yeah. all of the other assistance and, and, and benefits that they offer. But are you seeing kind of this do you see a difference in the generations of workers and what their expectation is of companies and what they're looking for? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of that research or sort of data that I've seen has been white collar focused. I would say very similar sort of patterns uh, on hourly, right? Like we see this uh, in our worker data and our worker research around greater importance of sort of the company's mission and sort of the values that they stand for in a way that I think we had not frankly pre-pandemic uh, how much of that is pandemic driven versus sort of the shift to Gen Z, which obviously is now really coming into the labor force, a little bit sort of TBD. Um, but, but, you know, it's clear that Gen Z has a very different set of expectations around what they look for and care about. Um, and, in, and in the current environment is the only single segment of the hourly workforce that is growing. So basically first time job entrants or you know, Gen Z, if you wanna think about it that way, those are up 35% year over year in terms of people actually looking for work. Every other segment of uh, the hourly workforce is actually down. It is Gen Z, are, do you primarily have labor jobs on Snack a Job or do you also have technology jobs? Because as, as a mom of uh, a son who's actually applying to college and waiting to hear in the next week or so, <laughs> if he gets in, and then it's an exciting other, time. I'm sorry. It's an exciting time in anxiety. It, it's, it's a lot of anxiety, I think, yeah. for him and for us on on how we're gonna how we're gonna pay for it. And as a college professor, you know, there's so much higher ed inflation. Um, and yeah. I think this generation is really questioning, like, do I need to go to college and can I just, you know, do Coursera courses or do free online courses in order to 
skill up and then kind of work my way up. What um, are you seeing any kinds of shifts in the types of jobs that are or employers that are coming to snag a job because you know they're not necessarily going for the the college graduate, but they're also going for for young people who are just skilling up uh, through free courses and technologists and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I think I think we. And obviously, you know, since since we focus on blue collar, sort of a subset of overall, I'd say a couple of a couple of things we've been seeing. One is I think rightly uh, people reevaluating what what actually requires a degree and what doesn't require a degree. And so I think we we're we we're just looking at this in our data around the percentage of jobs that are now removing degree requirements for frankly like fairly entry level roles where you'd question like what is the validity of a high school degree or a college degree like that's not a requirement to do that role um so i think that's been really a, a real positive sort of shift in mindset on the part of employers on the part of workers um it's been interesting because we we've seen a, a pretty significant shift in sort of interest in different sectors evolve over the last year and a half some of it for sure related to the pandemic and some of it i think as a function of you know, workers now having more confidence around where they are qualified and sort of having more opportunities available. So the sort of pandemic related one is um, there is a lot more interest now in working in grocery than there was pre-pandemic. And the hypothesis being um, a relatively simple one, right? Which is like the one industry that was really never affected in the pandemic was grocery. And so if you're thinking about, well, I'm uncertain how the pandemic may evolve over time, that's a safe haven. Uh, the other area that we've seen a really strong uptick in just in the last three, three four months has been hospitality. Um, and that's, that's because obviously we've seen a big snapback in particularly domestic travel and leisure travel. Um, and that's an industry that has always been a really appealing to hourly workers. And I think people now have greater confidence that they actually are qualified to transition from other industries into that. And how has um, how has snag a job? Uh, how have you fared during the pandemic? I mean, are, are you, your organization? Um, you have how many employees in your organization? Uh, we've got about two hundred and fifty. Okay, are are they work from home? Are they in the office? What what? How have you all fared uh, as well? Yeah, we so we um, you know I, I think like a lot of people you know we I think we were we were already good about sort of how we manage a distributed workforce pre-pandemic. Like everyone else, you know, we moved to sort of fully remote at the onset of the pandemic. We reopened our offices probably over the summer at some point, but made a decision, a very conscious one to say, the offices are a resource, but they are a resource for you to use at your discretion. Like your success here will not be tied in any way, shape or form to whether or not you choose to use those resources. And, and for me, you know, I, I think I, I've, I've always probably been, uh, hopefully on the more progressive end is, is thinking about sort of remote work, but, you know, I probably had some preconceived notions around the efficacy of something like problem solving remotely. I think that's proven to be categorically false, right? Like we're just as effective problem solving remotely as we were, you know, on a whiteboard together. I think what, what people miss, and we're, we're trying to navigate this like a lot of companies is we've seen overall over the last 18 months, I think actually higher engagement levels. I think as we start to get closer to quote unquote the other side of the pandemic is how do you still create sort of the sense of like community and bonds that people had, which 
sometimes they got from the office. And I, again, like I never thought about it as I want to sit in a cubicle for eight hours a day to have a 15 minute water cooler conversation or have lunch with somebody. Like that's a, that's a pretty high opportunity cost. What are the ways that we can create some of that sort of like just human to human connection that people really still value? That's a pretty big theme that we're seeing in the podcast as we speak with different CEOs and leaders is that level of flexibility that um, the ones who have seen a lot of successes, they offer the flexibility to the workers of work from home, work in the office, come in two days a week, you know, whatever works best for you. But the incentives to come into the office are built around developing community and um, collaboration and, you know, getting teams together in person, but not to necessarily work in a cube eight hours a day, cubicle eight hours a day. So we're seeing those similar themes as well. Uh, as we yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like we we have a, um, we're getting the, 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 the leadership team together for the first time uh, since the onset of the pandemic in person next week. And I would say the primary purpose of that is actually not business oriented. It's actually more to just spend time together as individuals. We'll spend a couple of hours of that you know, related to talking about sort of the company and what we want to achieve next year, but it's a lot more around that sort of human-human interaction. And that, that's, I think, been, I, for me, it's been a really positive shift around saying like, hey, some of the things that, you know, may or may not have, you know, been requirements to be successful in my sort of prior life, they just aren't requirements, right? Like that doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's been in some ways like a challenge for a lot of leaders who may have grown up saying like, well, this is the way that I became successful in my 20s or in my 30s. But listen, like that's that's the fun part about like business and about working is that like, you know, you get to reshape the narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting because, you know, coming from McKinsey, a very buttoned up, you know, old school kind of place <laughs> to now, hey, we're going to be remote. You know, we're doing all these things. It, it, you know, it has to take a mind shift to say, hey, I'm going to have enough confidence in myself as a leader to say, I don't have to subscribe to what worked in the past. And I'm gonna look forward, I'm gonna look where, what things are now and look forward. And I, I see like with Wall Street, they're having a hard time doing it where they're telling people yeah. to get back to the office. And you could see people don't wanna go back to the office. And when you have options in a hot job market, it's very easy to go somewhere else. Um, but speaking on, on what you were talking about in terms of those meetings, what else do you do, Matthew, for your team? Because from you know what I've seen, let's say from the recruiting work world, people you know over the last two years they're just kind of miserable, and I don't mean miserably being bad people, miserable just just worn down, yeah. burnt out, dealing with mental health issues, dealing with isolation, yeah. and now you as a CEO are like, how do you get these people kind of reinvigorated, which is not an easy task to do. Yeah. You know, how's it yeah, going? It's, if you don't mind my asking, how's it going with your company? How are you doing? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, and, and I'd say, you know, I'm probably lucky in that I think we have a very powerful mission. This is probably as mission-oriented of a of a company as I've as I've seen outside of maybe nonprofit. I think where 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 that sort of came into play is like that was sort of the unifying element uh, at the onset of the pandemic and has stayed true was, you know, we frankly like, you know, at the onset of the pandemic said, hey, and by the way, like we took, we took a big hit at the start, right? I mean, hourly hiring shut down for a few months, but we said like, hey, we, we have to help lead the recovery. Like we have this incredibly important role to play for workers who are now struggling with like 
how do I make ends meet? How do I find jobs outside of industries I never have? As well as employers who are now saying, I've got to rehire entire stores, entire warehouses of people that I had to lay off. And so that was just like tremendously galvanizing force. Um, and, you know, I think my learning over the last 18 months has been, you know, I think that's something that actually will stand the test of time, right? It's just a reminder to us of like, uh, you know, and I think the, the pandemic has, has enabled people to sort of reevaluate like what they want out of their careers and the companies they work for. But I noticed that like for me, it's actually just as important now to emphasize and articulate like how what we're doing impacts the mission as it was then. And it, you know, if there's, a, if there's a regret or sort of something that I wish I, I, you know, had done better was in the first probably six or 12 months of the pandemic, I wrote, in addition to sort of our weekly all hands where we talk about the performance of the company, I would do a weekly sort of update to the company. And it was a mix of how we were doing, like my take on the business, as well as like what we were seeing in sort of the macro environment, how we were thinking about sort of workers. Um, and I dialed that back probably a year into the pandemic because the company was doing well by that time, sort of, you know, things had shifted. And I think that was a mistake because I actually, and I, I hear it from, you know, I've heard it a lot over the last few months, people saying like, I wish I still had that. It feels like, it feels like maybe we're not as focused on the mission. And that's just because like, I wasn't talking about it as much. And so that it was a good reminder to me of just how important that is. The other piece for yeah. me that was sort of like an unexpected benefit of working remote is, and, and maybe others have commented on this, we would see at times some sort of uh, office tension, meaning between different cities. And remote actually put people on a level playing field in a way that we had actually been unable to do historically in a more office-oriented environment. That was actually a tremendous positive. And actually, as we look back, as we look forward to, you know, at some point people potentially leveraging sort of the office more than they do today, how do we maintain that? Because that's actually been a hugely positive outcome. There's, um, I just want to make a quick comment. I know Jack's going to close this out here in a moment, but um, there's a statistic I talk about uh, that I came across in, in my research with my class, which is 72% of Gen Z and young millennials believe it's companies, not governments, that are going to change the world, that are going to be the most positive impact on the world, have the most positive impact, and that they can actually get something done to help, you know, deal with the big issues of our world, like social justice or climate change and all of those. Uh, I feel like you just described that, right? Like when the pandemic and you were trying to figure out how do we reorganize and get the economy rolling again and getting, you know, uh, hourly workers back to work or reorganizing or finding work for them and so forth. It seems like your company played a pretty big role, probably bigger than than the federal government. Not that uh, President Biden might want to hear that, but it seems like you know when you say mission driven, it's it's true. You had a huge impact on on bringing us back out of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, listen, like I think uh, I think for me, the nice part about like you know being involved in helping build this company is. Uh, I think I sort of had this recognition probably later in my career than I, than I wish in retrospect that I had around like, you can have tremendous societal impact and still also have it be incredibly career rewarding and not feel like you're, you know, stepping back career wise. Like you can have your cake and eat it too. Like there are lots of amazing companies that 
are doing things that are in, that are you know doing well financially and are having tremendous impact on society at whole. And like I'm fortunate that I found one, but there are there are dozens of others, hundreds of others. Excellent. Before we head out, if you don't mind, if you have just a couple more minutes, yeah, of course. Quick, two quick questions for yourself personally. That might, you know, I don't mean to be too forward, but I imagine that had to be difficult. Where you're running a company, everything is fine. All of a sudden, your workers, as you pointed out, the dishwashers, you know, the hospitality workers, restaurant bars, they don't have jobs. And yeah. you're an empathetic person, having spoken to you a couple of times. That has to be rough. Like, oh my God, I feel responsible. What do I do? And then fast forward, all of a sudden there's a huge need and your clients are probably driving you crazy. Hey, we need more people. So how, you know, how, you know, you, you know, how do you cope? How do you deal with that? How do you kind of reconcile everything? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have figured that out personally, but uh, no, I, I think, uh, I mean, listen, like, you know, the, the late spring and early summer last year was, was very, very difficult in, in some ways, in some ways, right. Again, like the challenge made it that it, it sort of, again, was this sort of like tremendous, like galvanizing force where you just said like, okay, there are things that I have to do for our workers, for frankly, snag a job itself, right? Like we were in a pretty touch and go scenario there for a few months. Um, and so you almost didn't have time to sort of dwell on the sort of in, like enormity of it all. You just said like, these are the five things like we got to go do, we got to go do them now. And then listen, like one of my reflections and, you know, I, I'm sure others have sort of commented on it is like, there's, there are lots of things you can do well, like luck plays a role in all of these things. Like I, I'll give you an example from, from last year, like, you know, at, at the very onset we were hit, we were, we were down 40, 50% in sort of the month that COVID hit. So we realized really early on and we were incredibly transparent with the organization around like here, here, like, you know, basically like sustainability changes that we're making, right? Like took all sorts of like pay cuts, et cetera. And then it got to having to, to impact the actual organization itself. In which case we, in our case, we had to lay off about 10% of people. And that was easily the hardest decision I've ever been a part of. Um, and I've never had to do that in my career. You know, I hope we did it. I hope we did it. Uh, with grace and humility. I'm sure you did it better than a better.com guy. That's a very unfortunate one. That's a very unfortunate one. But, you know, the, the luck plays into, I remember at the time having a conversation with our board and saying uh, product and engineering, we, we cannot touch because there are things that now more than ever, we have to accelerate to be able to help with the recovery. And then we said our go-to-market or organization, which at the time companies were decimating. We said like, we've got to keep intact because this is where luck plays in. I said, I think based on my, you know, Googling that the pandemic is going to start to ease up in early summer, like it did in 1918. And we're going to see a much quicker recovery. Well, the reality was we obviously did not see that we're 18 months in, but we actually did see a quicker recovery. And so that's where luck, like it plays a role in this. And like, yeah, you have to do things like you have to work hard. You have to, you have to treat people well so that they're motivated and inspired, but like luck plays a role in all these things, right? Like, Absolutely. The, the other that was thing a bit too, of a bet the company, right? Like had I been wrong on that, oh. we would be in a tough spot. I, I, I would give yourself a little <laughs> bit more credit than luck. I think it's probably knowledge and preparation played a big role in it, so. 
that's my that's my take <laughs> and maybe a little bit of luck so yeah the other thing too like you just dropped it like it was it was nothing but to me it's kind of mind-blowing where you're saying if you could then let's say on your platform have somebody who could be ranked as like the top barista yeah that's you know let's say they're at starbucks and pete's is around the corner or whatever other that's all of a sudden what you're calling like the white colorization of blue collar because all of a sudden now they may pay a whole heck of a lot for that barista because you know if you have a good and I, you know using barista as an example but bartender could be the same thing if you have somebody that has a following or or, or someone who works at a nail salon or, or or you know a haircutting place they can all of a sudden do really well and get and be you know that white colorization of blue collar jobs because now all of a sudden you're able to promote this person and say hey look you can get you know, an average person who's a bartender or a barista is getting X, but you're getting 10X. So that for that person is a game changer. That's a life changer in terms of building out their career. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, like, you know, you know, oftentimes historically, like companies would say, well, this is what I pay for mm -hmm. X role. In, in white collar, you know, most companies have sort of a band that, right. you know, based on the individual involved, you're willing to do X or Y. My philosophy has been like that, that should be the case in, in hourly. And when you talk with companies and you say, would you be willing to pay, you know, $2 an hour more for somebody that has six, five-star reviews as a barista and has, you know, 20 different people vouching for them on these characteristics. Yeah. People say, yes, absolutely. And for me, like giving them the optionality of earning that $2 more, I think is tremendously powerful. Yeah. Again, like psychologically, the, the ability to make someone feel wanted, I think is a game changer in hourly. Because again, I talked about it, right? That, that world's best barista, unless, unless he or she goes on a job platform, historically, like they haven't been able to have companies seek them out, right? In white collar, you might have a search firm, you might have you know, a recruiter reach out to you. That has historically not been the case in hourly. I think that's just like psychologically an incredibly powerful thing as we try and break the stigma, quote unquote, of blue collar. Tessa, Matthew, what do you think about this too? Where you know, Tessa's, all oh, this is going to college. I have one who just literally just graduated recently and in college. Kind of thanks, but boy, is it freaking expensive. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And the minute you're gone, God forbid they try to help out with career advice or getting you something. You're like, hey, thanks for all the money. <laughs> Take care. See ya. So I wonder, do you, do you think with the re-emergence going back to like you know the 1950s we talked about last night right where you know you could have a certain blue collarish job and have a house and a family and all that kind of stuff two cars picket fence you know the whole you know whole deal do you think if things keep going the way it is a lot of parents are going to start saying this is nuts i'm going to pay 30 40 50 60 thousand dollars a year for four years maybe longer and then they want to you know an mba or a jd even more and this is just cost prohibitive because you see so many millennials who, you know, are putting off whole, you know, having kids because they're just drowning in debt and maybe say, hey, wait a minute. If all of a sudden, you know, your marketplace and the people that you place and, and, and you deal with, if that starts getting paid better and there's more of a, you know, a way to kind of go on and, and maybe they do offer free, you know, if you go to Walmart or Amazon, you get free tuition. Yeah. That a lot of parents might be telling their kids, you know what, maybe... You know, you're handy, so maybe, you know, think of welding or think of carpentry or think of electric, you know, what have you. Do you think it's possible what we might see that change, you know, that whole dynamic kind of go back to where it was? 
just a few decades. Yeah, I, 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 like I, uh, I mean, Tess is probably closer to it than I am. So you know, I'd love your perspective on it. Like, I do, I do think the last few years, and you know, firms like Udacity and others, I think, are accelerating that conversation as, as well as hopefully us on on the blue collar side around like, you know, there are paths that may not necessarily require as significant of an investment as a lot of households have been making in college. Like, does that mean college is not important? No, but I think there are certain paths that can be a lot more pragmatic. And I think companies are starting to open their eyes to that. Well, that's great. Anything that Tessa and I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Or, or we kind of took up enough of your time? <laughs> no, no, I, I, like for, for me, uh, for me again, like I, I probably, and one of the reasons uh, I love sort of the theme of the podcast is like, I love the, the element of like positivity. Uh, for me, like the positives that have come out of this, one have been around on the white collar side, which is, you know, there was probably always some sense, I don't know that it was ever explicitly said that, you know, managements and companies in some ways distrusted their workers as it related to working remote. And I, I've, I've heard that directly, if I think back to consulting days, right? Like, oh, well, are they really gonna work as hard as I am if they're outside of the office? I think hopefully the last 18 months has proven definitively that yes, they can be trusted and you probably always should have trusted them. And then I think the, the other has been on blue collar, which is, you know, blue collar has been the backbone of everything that we do in the economy. I think it has been wonderful to see, you know, a, a greater appreciation for what frontline workers and blue collar workers do in our country, as well as a better understanding of the linkage between their efforts and actually the PL results of a company, right? Like go look at the earnings of a lot of major hourly employers today. They will a lot of times size the impact of not having been able to have sufficient staff. I think that's tremendously enabling because that that historically was always viewed as sort of a cost center. And now I think people are saying, hey, actually this is a real driver of productivity and of performance of my company in a way that I don't think I had seen from mo most companies historically. And so for me, those are really two very, very positive outcomes. Well, that's great. That's a, that's a great way to end it. A very positive, forward-looking you know, mindset. And I really appreciate- I think, yeah, I think you have to be positive if you're an entrepreneur because- Yeah, right, no choice, right? <laughs> There's a great quote that I heard from somebody, which was like, when you're building a company, uh, it is basically tackling a series of setbacks with great enthusiasm. <laughs> I thought that was like a perfect, a perfect metaphor for it is, it an is. entrepreneur. It is. So, so I really appreciate you taking time. This is great. It was a really Thank great conversation. So it's awesome. And I'm glad we covered a topic that you don't, you know, you don't, you don't hear too much about which you should for all the reasons you talked about, Matthew. So thank you so much. Yeah, likewise, guys. That was Wonderful. great catching up. Excellent.